Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to, to head on back to your seats. It's wonderful to see you. And uh, happy Easter. He is risen. We've been uh, working on that with our kiddos. Uh, the old, my oldest son, he's got it. He's got that thing nailed, but man, Soren, he's still, still on his way. So we're, we'll get there, right, Soren? Yeah, all right. Um, Anyway, happy Easter. Uh, my name is Marshall. I am one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new, uh, we just hope that you feel welcome. And um, you're actually coming on the week where we are finishing a series that we have been in for seven weeks. Uh, for the whole season of Lent, which is the 40 days that lead up to Easter weekend, uh, we have been examining the, the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. So all of the different places where Jesus says, I am, and then he describes himself. Because we were seeking to answer the question, not just who does the world say that he is, or even who does the church say that he is, but who does Jesus say that he is? Who is Jesus according to Jesus? And so today we are going to wrap up that series uh, with the final statement of Jesus in the book of John, in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you have a Bible with you, go and open it up to John chapter 11. Uh, I'd love for you to be able to see it on the page, see that I'm not making anything up. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the pew Bibles that's in front of you or just Google it, John chapter 11. It should take you there just fine. And here is the big idea of the passage that we are about to read and everything that we are talking about this morning. That Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus has come to redeem your, pa redeem your past and bring the hope and the life of the future, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, into your present. Let me say that again. Jesus has come to redeem your past and to bring the hope and the life of the future into your present. And this is the central claim and the central hope of the Christian life. This is the good news that Jesus came proclaiming to everyone that he encountered and that he is still proclaiming to each one of us in this room today. Whether you are a lifelong Christian and you've been in church since the day that you were born, or maybe you are somebody who is new to faith, or maybe you're somebody who wouldn't even consider yourself to be a Christian at all and you were dragged here by uh, your wife or your mom or something like that. We're really glad you're here too. Um, and this is the central claim that Jesus would make even to you today. Regardless of where you stand with Jesus, what he is offering to you is to redeem your past and to drag the life of the future into your present reality. Amen? I have a really weird and complicated relationship with springtime. Um, and I don't really understand it because spring is the most amazing time of the year. If I grew up here in the Pacific Northwest and we know that spring is the season of hope. You know, after the long months of darkness and rain and it feels like it's never going to end. As soon as you start to see the, the flowers bloom and the, the, the cherry cheese blossom, uh, it's a symbol that eventually something is going to be better, that the world is changing, that winter is over, and freedom is around the corner. And this year especially, I mean, it feels like for the last 12 months we've been in a state of winter, where we've been isolated, where we've been left, you know, everybody 
off in their own homes, separated from each other. And it feels like right now we're finally starting to enter into sort of a national or global springtime where everything is starting to reemerge a little bit at a time, and there's hope out on the horizon. So spring is amazing. But on the other hand, for some reason, spring seems to be a season of grief for my family nearly every year. And I can't explain it. I have no idea why. But uh, during the weeks leading up to and right after Easter, for some reason, we just always have a series of tragedies. We've had like really awful vacations that have been like almost a judgment. It seems like a judgment of God against my wife and I right in the springtime. We've had um, our child, our, our oldest son was hospitalized for a week uh, right after Easter at this time of year. All of our pets that have passed away have passed away right around this time. It is so bizarre. And even last weekend, my family had a schedule conflict where we had two funerals on the same day that we had to figure out how we were going to navigate that. And within the last 10 days or so, two of our family members had been uh, suddenly hospitalized for, um, for things that were quite scary, and still we don't really know exactly what was happening there. And, so, and then, of course, this week, some of you might have already heard this, but I, I was like, you remember Wednesday, how amazing Wednesday was? I went to a restaurant. I met with a friend of mine in Portland. It felt like, oh, we're back. This is so great. And we had this wonderful time together. I get back to my car only to find that somebody had smashed my window and stolen a few thousand dollars worth of stuff out of my car. And I was like, springtime. <laughs> this is spring. And, and here's the thing. No one in this room is untouched by the real pain of, our, of life. And Easter is the collision of these two things. Easter is the collision of death and life, of suffering and of hope, of pain and of healing, of sorrow and of joy. It is on this weekend where we are remembering the fact that what Jesus did was not a peaceful thing. It was a radical, like, conquering of our greatest enemy. And that is the, at the heart of the story that we are looking at this morning. So if you have John chapter 11, I'm going to catch you up real quick, and then we'll, we're going to begin in verse 17. So Jesus has been traveling all over the, the area that is surrounding Jerusalem uh, in his ministry. And what he's doing is he's announcing the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and then he's demonstrating what that kingdom is like by uh, healing sick people. And by casting out demons and feeding hungry people, he's showing that wherever the presence and power of God goes, that all of the bad things in the world are being undone. And while Jesus is in Jerusalem, he does this thing that to you and I will seem quite petty, but it stirred up a huge controversy. He healed a guy on the wrong day. And this made the religious people that we call the Pharisees really angry. And they were so angry, in fact, that they rose up and they were seeking Jesus to kill him. They wanted to stone him to death. And so Jesus, he retreats out to the wilderness areas, to the surrounding villages in the outskirts of Jerusalem to kind of hide out and let things cool down for a bit. And while Jesus is out in these surrounding villages, he receives word that one of his closest friends, a guy named Lazarus, had just fallen like severely ill and that it was not looking good for him. And Lazarus has two sisters, one named Mary and one named Martha, that we read about in the scripture. 
and that these t- sisters send word, and here's what they send, the message that they send to Jesus. They say, Lord, the one that you love is sick. You see, these sisters, they know Jesus. They have seen him heal. They know that they don't need to plead or make a case or convince him why he should drop what he's doing to come and heal their brother Lazarus. They know that if they just mention that Lazarus is sick, that Jesus is going to just immediately drop everything. He's going to rush to his close friend, and he's going to make sure that he is okay. Because they know that Jesus loves their family. And so what is Jesus' response? Jesus waits for two extra days. He stays right where he is, and everybody else is like, should we go? Should we not go? Is it safe to go? Are people still looking for us? And Jesus says this really provocative sentence. He says, this sickness is not going to end in death. It's going to glorify God. And in those couple days where they wait, uh, where, where they wait in their village, it turns out that Lazarus dies. And so then Jesus and his friends, they head over to Bethany, and, and as they're approaching, uh, they, they find that Mary and Martha and the family are in full grief mode. They're, doing, uh, they're sitting shiva. So it, in the Jewish culture, you know, when somebody passes, the immediate family and friends, they just sit together in the grief for uh, days or even weeks. In some traditions, it's seven days. For some traditions, it's 30 days. So these women are sitting Shiva in their home. And as Jesus approaches Martha, she rushes out to meet him and to talk to him. And here is what we see beginning in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. So we see that Martha, in her grief, she runs to Jesus. And in her response, we actually see the same struggle and all of the same things that we tend to do. The technically correct but incomplete things that we say or do when we are also in that place of grief. She begins by bringing up the past. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Imagine what these sisters had just gone through. They had just spent the previous weeks nursing their brother, um, back, trying to nurse him back to health, caring for him in his sudden illness. Most scholars believe that Lazarus was not an old man, but that he was actually quite young. And so what we know is that if a young person falls suddenly ill and it results in death, it's almost always and definitely a, a violent death. It is not a peaceful sickness. It is painful. It is one that has probably high fever and vomit and delirium and all and aches and pain and coughing and all of the things that we know would have been suffering right up until the end. You see, death is always ugly. There is no such thing as beautiful death. And death always seeks to rob us of our dignity. A few weeks ago, a good friend of ours, a core member of this church, she, um, she, was, she was dying, our friend Michelle. 
And as she was at the hospice facility, um, I rushed to go see her. And when I arrived, I discovered that she had already gone unconscious. And Michelle was a vibrant woman. She was full of life. She was an incredible woman. But in that moment, what you saw when you saw her was she was unconscious and gasping for every breath, laboring for every breath. And over time, that labored breath became more of a gurgle and more of a rattle until eventually she passed. This is how we die. Happy Easter, everybody. And these sisters, they were at the bedside of their brother. They were desperately trying to keep him alive long enough for Jesus to arrive so that he could heal, and Jesus never came. And so when they see Jesus coming, Martha rushes out to meet him, and she says, Where were you? Where were you? If you had only been here. And how many of us have had moments like that? Have you ever walked through a painful experience in your life and you just can't find God anywhere? It feels like he's absent, like he's nowhere to be seen. Or maybe you struggle with the idea of faith because you can't reconcile in your mind how you could have suffered the way that you suffered and there be a good and loving God who actually cares about you and has a plan for your life. And maybe you would look at Jesus and you would say the same thing to him. Where were you? Martha's leaking her pain in that moment. This isn't accusation. This is just her pain coming out. And this is the pain of the previous week that is erupting from her. But she catches herself in the next sentence with what she knows to be true in the present. Look at verse 22. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Martha moves from bringing up the past to sort of comforting herself in the present by saying what she's supposed to say, even if she's not feeling it. She may not even be able to muster any kind of belief in it. And this, again, this is what we all resort to in these moments, in these moments of grief. Some kind of vague religious cliche to make people feel better. We don't know what else to say, so we mumble something about everything happening for a reason or the person is in a better place or something like that. And while those things may be technically true, they somehow still feel so hollow as they come out of our mouths. They don't feel like they're really scratching the itch that's in our soul. But Jesus doesn't respond with that. No, you see, Jesus responds with a bold statement. He doesn't affirm her theology. He doesn't give her some vague cliche. No, Jesus makes a claim that then removes all of our ability to, to just say that Jesus was a good moral teacher because he doesn't claim to be that. He actually goes so far as to say that he is the solution to the crisis that is happening in that moment. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus doesn't just point to a solution. Jesus announces that he is the solution. He says that the resurrection and the life isn't just some future event out on the horizon that we can put some kind of ambiguous hope in one day. He's not just saying that resurrection will one day happen, so don't worry about the pain you're feeling now. 
Jesus looks Martha right in the eye and he says, the resurrection is standing right in front of you and it's available today. You see, Jesus is the solution to the pain of her past, the weakness of her present faith and the ambiguity of her future hope. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then to prove that these are not just empty words, look what Jesus does next. Skip all the way down to verse 38. We're going to skip a huge chunk of this story. Jesus once more deeply moved, sorry, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. If you read that in the King James Version, by the way, uh, the word that's used is stinketh. It stinketh. Um, Little tidbit for you. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, real quick, before we jump to the next slide, consider what's happening right here. Jesus says that he's the resurrection of the life, that that he's going to fix the problem. He's the solution. He comes up. He says, okay, get that stone out of the way. I'm about to do something amazing. And Martha, who had just moments before been saying to Jesus, I totally trust you. I believe in you. I believe that God loves you and that you're, you're his son. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that anything that you ask Jesus, God will do for you. And so Jesus is like, awesome. Get that stone out of the way. And she's like, Whoa, Jesus, like, come on, be reasonable here. Like, it's going to smell pretty terrible. And Jesus confronts her lack of belief by saying that if you want to see the glory of God, all you need to do is believe. And he's not accusing her in this moment. He's just revealing ever so gently the, the, the fragility, the frailty, the weakness of her faith. And he's not condemning her. He's, he's just, he's pointing out the fact that all that she had were these platitudes But he's about to show the power behind the words that she was uttering all along. Let's keep going. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And all in an instant, the pain of the previous weeks that they had just walked through, all of the doubt, all of the questions, all of the fears that they had were undone. They all unraveled as Mary and Martha's brother walks out of a tomb. And when these women had nothing left to cling to except vague religious platitudes that he's, their brother is in a better place or that they'll meet again someday, the solution that they were longing for was standing right in front of them. They had been hoping in a future resurrection because that's all they had left. But the resurrection and the life stood right there with them and he loved them. And you see, this is what Jesus had been doing for his entire ministry. Everywhere that Jesus went, he would announce a religious statement, and then he would show what that religious statement actually meant in our real lives. He didn't just offer some vague religious beliefs to people and say, maybe this will help you feel better as you go through the difficulties of life. He gave us an entire new way of living. 
He, he said that the kingdom of God really is at hand. And then he showed what that was like. And what was the kingdom doing in the lives of these women? Jesus redeemed their pain and sorrow and dragged the hope of the future into their present circumstances. And you need to hear that Jesus is doing the same stuff right here and right now. And the story in John chapter 11 is so powerful. I mean, it's amazing. A man who was dead for four days, he gets up out of a tomb at the sound of Jesus' voice. But that's not the story that we came to celebrate this morning, is it? You see, a short time after this, uh, depending on your timeline, somewhere between days and weeks later, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, after Jesus commanded his friend to get up out of the grave, Jesus himself then goes to the cross and he laid down his life. The sinless son of God willingly suffered an agonizing death for us. And the Bible says that when he went to the cross, that he did so to bear our grief on his shoulders and our sorrow and the guilt of our sins. And those things crushed him. And then on the third day, he got up and he walked out of the tomb. And in that instant, Jesus overcame not just the guilt of your sins so that you could be forgiven for the wrong things that you've done. Not just the pain or your sorrow. That at the cross, Jesus defeated death itself. So that those who put their trust in him can experience a whole new life with him. And he did this for all of us. You see, the story that we just read, Jesus is redeeming your past. No matter what's in your closet, whether you've experienced horrific abuse and have been mistreated in ways that make you shudder even to remember, or if you've done some stuff that you think would disqualify you from ever being able to be loved by God or anywhere in anyone else, Jesus' work on the cross brings forgiveness and healing. And when you put your faith in Jesus, all of those things in the past, all of the things that have been done to you and the things that you have done, those things are nailed with him on that cross. And the old life that you once lived, the life of pain and sorrow and suffering, the life of guilt and shame, the life of bitterness, all of that is put to death so that you could be resurrected with Jesus into a new life with him in his kingdom. That's what it means to be born again. That's what we're talking about when we say Christians are born again. It's a whole new life. And Jesus not only redeems our past, but he also breaks down all of the vague religious platitudes or lukewarm faith that we may find ourselves resorting to because we don't really know what else to cling to in this life. And he, he comes and he, he reveals that this has never been about religion. It's never been about vague truisms. It's always been about relationship with him. It's always been about a life of power with Jesus. You may know a whole series of religious truisms, but Jesus says to look up and behold that he alone is your salvation. And he invites us beyond bumper sticker Christianity. Sorry, Siri has some questions. <laughs> oh man. I was just working to a climax too. Like this was gonna be good. Bumper stick. He invites us beyond bumper sticker Christianity to experience what he calls abundant life. 
And then Jesus drags the future hope into the reality of our present. And he shows us that the, that the eternal life that we all long for is not just some vague future thing after we die. It's not some, some heavenly dwelling way off in the distance. But that Jesus defines eternal life for us by saying that eternal life is knowing God and living with him. On Friday afternoon before our Good Friday service, um, Good Friday is the day that Jesus died on the cross, um, we had a service, and before that I went for a walk just to clear my head um, and to pray and just to even reflect a little bit on the meaning of the day, what Jesus did for me to, to save me from my sin. And as I was walking along, I was struck not only by the fact that Jesus was willing to forgive just so much sin that's in my life, but I was also struck by the reality of what he has saved me from. Like, who would I have become if Jesus didn't intervene in my life? Have you ever asked yourself the question, who would I be if Jesus didn't step in my life when he did? Now, I know myself well enough to, to know that it probably wouldn't be the best life without Jesus. Um, based on what I know of myself and of my family history, uh, I could easily have veered into all kinds of, of evil in my life. Um, I know if I'm struggling right now with the Holy Spirit living inside of me, how much more would I struggle without it, without him? And I think that, that it's important for us to reflect regularly on how Jesus not only saves us from our past, but he sets us on an entirely new trajectory. When I surrendered my life to the Lord, my life's trajectory changed. He gave me a new future. And I'm still living in a world that is at war. And while I'm not yet who God has designed me to be, as a follower of Jesus, I'm leaning into the future that God has designed for me. He has promised by the power of the Holy Spirit to change me into a new man. And everything has, in my life has been changed by Jesus. He's daily transforming me into the man that he's called me to be. He's changing how I speak to my friends or how I work or how I relate to money or how I spend time with my neighbors or my family or my parenting. And what he's leading, into, leading me into is what Jesus calls abundant life. It's a life that is free of the tyranny of addiction. It's a life that is unhidden from the people that I love and I care about. It's a life free of guilt or shame because everything that would weigh me down has already been nailed to the cross with Jesus. And this is what Jesus is inviting you to experience today. And if you have been a Christian your whole life, Jesus would say, my, nurse, my mercies are new every morning. Come and receive from me. And if you're new to your faith, Jesus would say, I'm still with you. I'm going to carry you through everything that you face. And if you are not a Christian, Jesus would say, come to me. I'll change your entire life. Let's do it together. Amen?